So, just to begin, uh, as Scott already said, I actually was excited that I got this lot in preaching this year. I mean, I can't help but reflect on uh, the year every time we come to this time of year, but this year I think especially warrants that. But just stop for a second and imagine if you fell asleep on December 25th of 2019 and then woke up today. Oh my, how things have changed. I know uh, not everything has been funny this year. In fact, maybe even most things haven't been funny, but we'll have to laugh at some point, and we have to laugh at some things. Um, there's some jokes that I can say today that would have made no sense a year ago, but I think everyone will get them now. For example, um, due to, due to uh, quarantine, I'll only be telling inside jokes today. Kim got it, and maybe one other person. The rest of y'all are going to have to catch up. So here's another one. Day seven of social distancing. I struck up a conversation with a spider today. He seems nice. He says he's a web designer. A common question, what day is it? I did that like this week. I was thinking it was Monday, and it was Saturday. It's all, it's all the same. Uh, and then, of course, some of my favorite quotes from work is, hey, you're on mute. <laughs> hey, your camera's off. It's every day that happens. Um, for And concerning school, maybe there are those of you here or online that normally didn't have to homeschool, but this year you did at least some of that. And, uh, and if you asked me what the hardest part of battling a global pandemic would be, I would have never guessed it would be teaching elementary school grade math. Um, and here's another one I heard. It says, my daughter walked in on me talking to myself. And I told her to give me a half hour because I'm having a parent-teacher conference. <laughs> Sometimes you just have to have those when that's all that it is. It's been a different year. I mean, just think of some of the major things that have happened. Politics. Um, we went through the impeachment of a president. We went through the elections and all of the things involved with that. We will be going through the change of an administration, and it's been tumultuous to say the least. Uh, and then considering our cultural circumstances, remember Kobe Bryant was killed in a helicopter crash. We saw the, really the murder of George Floyd uh, on our phones and on our TVs. And then we saw all kinds of responses to that. Some were good, but there was a lot that was very bad. Um, riots, destruction of properties, stealing, the murdering of police officers in cold blood, all non-Christian, uh, not godly responses to that kind of thing. And that swept our nation. And then if you remember, uh, there was also what was called murder hornets that were spotted in the U.S. And uh, my son and I like to watch this. Uh, he's a YouTuber that has a channel that talks about insects and animals. And he mentioned that these are actually the Japanese giant hornet. Um, and there's even some thought that it could just be what's called a cicada killer. And it, it, it's a wasp or hornet-like uh, thing that hunts cicadas. But of course, it's given the name murder hornets because why not? And it's 2020, so let's just make everything like that. And then Chadwick Boseman, uh, the actor who acted Black Panther, passes away due to colon cancer. And um, but my family, we love the Avengers. We love watching that. So. We had to understand that. Alex Trebek, the longtime host of Jeopardy, passes away from pancreatic cancer. 
There were wildfires in Australia and on uh, the U.S. West Coast. <laughs> Very recently, there's espionage and hacking going on between countries because there's already not enough going on, so we need to add that kind of stuff. And then, of course, the big elephant in the room, the thing that's really changed it all, is the pandemic. So in December and January of 2019, SARS-CoV-2, or COVID-19, begins to spread. Shortly after Wuhan, China goes on quarantine, the World Health Organization issues a, a global emergency. Global air travel is restricted. The U.S. finally declares a public health emergency. And then we ban travel from the U.S. Uh, and Europe. Texas colleges and universities and schools go remote. And then we have 15 days to flatten the curve, which is going to quickly turn into a year and really has no end in sight. And all of our bars and restaurants begin to close and go takeout only. And then we're given, uh, uh, I don't know what it's called, well, it's officially called the CARES Act, but signed into law with a, a $2 trillion price tag. And then there's going to be something else probably come up that has a huge price tag on it that's um, to give uh, money to you and I, among other things, but all of that going on. So since then, we've had day after day with the number of infection counts rising, the number of death counts rising, the reduction of the number of people allowed to gather in public, or at least uh, mandated or recommended, stay-at-home orders, we're all wearing some kind of face covering, there are multiple vaccines just coming out. There's been reopenings and then the reversal of those things. People have lost their jobs, had to miss funerals and other important events. And several times this year, we've participated in, and received it ourselves of drive-by birthday parties, which I didn't even know were a thing until this year. Um, but I mean, the truth is we're all doing the best we can in, in the given circumstances. It's hard. This is a year of firsts in a lot of ways. <laughs> this is the first time that I've given a haircut to my son, and it turned out pretty good. Uh, at least the second time it did, and the first time I was learning, so it's okay. And there was a little patch, but other than that, it grew back, so it's fine. This is the first time uh, that I've ever been concerned, and it's been on my mind, about buying toilet paper, buying enough toilet paper. It's the first time I've gone to a store early, like it's Black Friday, but I'm not hunting for electronics. I'm hunting for Lysol wipes or something like that. Um, it's the first time we've sold a house. And quick side note, if I ever mention about doing that again, please duct tape me and lock me in the first closet you find, and I will be fine. I, just, I give you that permission. I will be fine. It's the first time that we've had Christmas in July due to a dying family member that wouldn't make it to Christmas. It's the first time I've gone somewhere and I couldn't go in because I forgot my mask. I've done that so many times and you probably have too. This is my first year as uh, a pastor at City View. It's not quite the first year I expected it would be. It's hard. And to tell you the truth, it's it's impossible in a lot of ways to pastor someone you hardly see or talk to. Um, it's the first time I've ever preached outside. And I think I was City View's first outside preacher on a Sunday morning. So that's cool. I'll remember that. 
It's the first time I've ever preached to an empty room, and that's not fun. I don't want to do that again. By the way, um, many of you know John Murphy. Um, he's our lead audio and visual tech that serve our church, and he's served our church for many years. We all owe him a tremendous debt of gratitude for all the work that he's done to, to put that in. Um, so if you have his number or whatever or his email, shoot him a text, shoot an email, and thank him for that, um, for taking his time and using his expertise to help us get up and running with that. This was the first time I've ever worked from home more than I've worked from work. Uh, video meetings and conference calls and programming is sometimes done with a child or even two on my lap. And I see uh, my coworkers' homes in their video, which I've never been to their house, but I see their homes. And I see their animals and their families and all the interruptions that come with that. We've just all gotten used to it. And it just happens. And uh, this year we've also had our second child who was born on April 13th of 2020. Um, and of course, this was right at the beginning of this whole thing. This was when, uh, at one point in New York, they weren't even allowing um, husbands uh, or the man to be there when the wife was having uh, the child. And so there was that worry that I would not be able to be there, but God was gracious and I was allowed to be there. But the pregnancy was hard, harder than the first time. And of course, no other family members were allowed, so it was just me and her for a few days. It has been a hard year, and you have your struggles, and you know people that have had their unique struggles this year, and we're, we're, I've, I've either heard it said explicitly in some cases, or just the way people talk is like the end of the world is here, and that's actually the reason why I chose the passage that we're going to be at today, which is Second Peter chapter 3, so you can take your Bibles and turn there. Second Peter chapter 3, and my sermon is entitled, The End of the World. And so what I wanted to do was really to, kind of as Scott said during uh, worship, to, to refocus our mind on, yes, we have all of these things going on, but what do the scriptures say about the end of the world? They do have something to say to us. So 2 Peter chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm just going to read the chapter, and then we're going to come back uh, and uh, review some things. So verse 1, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by a way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately, deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. According, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Would you bow your head and pray with me and for me this morning? Father, thank you for another day for all of us. Thank you for waking us up today and giving us a purpose, giving us an opportunity to worship you and to glorify you. Lord, I pray that you would bless the teaching and reading of your word today and that you would focus our minds on you that, so that we can be stable and grow for the days ahead. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the end of the world. This is what Peter is really addressing uh, in his second letter and in this last chapter specifically. So we're going to go all the way back to verse 1 and really walk through everything that he has said to us. So you notice this, this is the second letter that I'm writing to you. Um, the first letter was just one book before what's placed in our Bibles is First Peter. But this is the second one. And uh, there's a few things that he does in both of the letters, um, which I'm going to get to. But I want to note I want to note a few things. He writes the second letter, and then it says, "Notice who he's writing this to." This is so important today. In fact, this is critically important to understand some things. Now, this is the second letter that I am writing to you. So, who's the you? The next word tells us, "Beloved." Those ones who he loves, those ones who God has placed His love on. I want to get into this more, and we are going to get into it more and explain it, but that's who he is addressing. So in both letters, he's writing to stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Back on the beloved part, this is the first of five times in this chapter that he uses that word. Keep that in mind as we continue on. So that's the target of his audience. Uh, and in 2 Peter chapter 1, the very beginning of this letter, he starts out, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's just crystal clear. He's writing to those who believe in Jesus. That is who he is addressing today. 
And so in both letters, he's reminding us of something. He's stirring us up, and the word he uses literally means to wake up or arouse from sleep, as if someone was sleeping. So he's awaking our minds from a sleep. And this is the second time he's used this phrase. The first time was in 2 Peter 1.13. He says, I think it is right as long as I, as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. So Peter's goal with this letter is to stir them up, to wake them up, because maybe some of them have gotten a little mentally foggy or uh, lax with some things. Uh, and one of, the thing, one of the words he uses is really interesting. Our English translated as uh, he's stirring up your sincere mind. Literally, the word he uses is actually a compound of two words, uh, the first word meaning son and the other word meaning judge. And it literally means to be, he's stirring us up uh, in a way that to be uh, examined or judged by the sun's light. So it's like he's opening something and the sun's going to light everything up inside of it. That's the word he uses. He wants to stir us up and make everything crystal clear. And so in verse 2, he starts laying these things out. He says, we should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So notice what Peter calls Jesus here. He calls him the Lord and Savior. Jesus is both. This is a, uh, actually a very specific Greek construction, and it, both of those, Lord and Savior, both apply to Jesus. It's not an either-or, but it is a both thing. So what does it mean that Jesus is Lord? It means that he is master or owner. What does it mean that he's Savior? He's a Savior from sin, from judgment, and from God's eternal wrath. Jesus cannot be Savior without being Lord, and he cannot be Lord without being Savior. You can't have one without the other. No one can genuinely say, Jesus is my Savior, if Jesus is not their Lord. If he's not your Lord, then who is? (laughs) What did he save you from? Who orders you around? Who owns you? So Peter tells us to remember two things. Number one is the prediction of the holy prophets. Uh, And so what are these things that the prophets talked about? Well, the judgment and destruction of the whole world. And they are God's intermediate agents that received God's words. And God is the ultimate agent. That he's the one giving his agents his words. And they are to faithfully um, speak those out. So that's the first thing that we are to remember, what the holy prophet said. The second thing is the commandment of Jesus through the apostles. What is the commandment of Jesus through the apostles? Uh, It is the gospel, to believe it, to obey it, and to preach it. Those are the two things that we are to remember, the coming judgment and then the good news. And then in verse 3, so he gives a little bit of a preface here. Scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. I think we live in the day that... Christianity is maybe mocked more than it ever has been, just openly and publicly. Uh, and maybe not only that, it's just, it's more than acceptable to do so. It's almost expected. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's cheered and celebrated, actually. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. That's one of the groups of people that Peter has here. He's going to contrast those with believers later, so we'll, we'll keep those in mind. Verse 4, and what do these scoffers say? They will say, where is the promise of his coming, of Jesus' coming? 
They say, forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So where is the promise of his coming? That's what the apostles were talking about. They were saying Jesus promised to come back. Jesus said himself in John 14, 3, he says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And then after Jesus ascended to heaven in Acts chapter 1, uh, it, it was said by the, the angels that were there, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go up into heaven. So there's the promise from Jesus himself. There's the promise from his, uh, all the messengers of heaven that Jesus is coming back. And that's what the scoffers are saying. Where, where is the promise of his coming? Of his coming? Uh, they're saying, uh, it's been too long. It's been too long. What, where is he? And I mean, we have that same thing today. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus has lived and died and rose again. Where is he? Where is he coming? He's nowhere to be found. We're hearing the same things today. But what's an, one of the other things they mock? What's one of the things they say here? It says, for ever since the fathers fell asleep. What's funny is they use the same terminology that really Jesus and the early Christians used. Talking about falling asleep. We know that's kind of a euphemism for dying. But, um, but they make fun of this. One of the things Jesus did in his earthly ministry was he uh, raised a child from the dead. And it's found in Luke 8, 52. And it says, and they were all inside weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep for she is not dead, but she is sleeping. And then the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, and the whole chapter deals with the context of the resurrection. Uh, Paul says, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So the the idea of sleeping instead of dying is really a Christian idea. Uh, and the whole point is that this is not the only life for us, that there is another life. And really, when we do die in this life, because of Jesus, we never really die. We fall asleep here, and we wake up where he is. So all things, And then they say all things are continuing as they were from uh, the time of the creation. And he uses a word that basically says, reaches back into the past and says, everything began at that point, nothing has changed. And so they're mocking this whole thing. Jesus hasn't come back. You people say we're sleeping instead of dying, and nothing has changed. That's all the, mock, all the scoffing and mocking that they're doing. But then Peter tells us what's actually going on there in verse 5. He says, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. They deliberately overlooked this fact. It's not convenient for them to, to look at what God has said consistently over time and to look at things as he uh, sees them and intends them to be understood. They overlooked that. The heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water. That's the means by which God had formed the world. There was water all around it, and it's, it's uh, I'll get to the explanation more of the water in verse 6. But then he uses the phrase, out of water and through water, by the word of God. The phrase word of God can mean different things in different contexts. Uh, in this particular case, it's either referring to the simple commands of God, for example, in uh, the uh, early parts of Genesis, God says, let there be light, so it's a command. It's either referring to that or it's referring to Jesus himself, which would be uh, supported by Colossians chapter 1, that Jesus was the one through whom everything was created. 
Uh, so it's either referring to Jesus as being the instrument God used to create the world, the whole context that flowed uh, through him, everything of that, or it's just God's simple commands. Um, one of those two. Now we'll get back to the verse 6 where it talks about why, why, why the uh, water was important to be mentioned. It says, and by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So God created the world through water. There was water everywhere, lakes, rivers, oceans, all of that. And it says, by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water. So God created the water, and he used that same water to destroy the world. And this is obviously a reference to Noah, if you are familiar with the Bible at all. Noah and builds his ark, takes the animals in. God floods the world and destroys everything except Noah and his family and everything that was on the ark. Um, this is actually the uh, third reference that Peter uh, uses to refer back to Noah. Going back one in 2 Peter 2.5, he says, uh, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, who was a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So it's, again, using Noah and all of the stories surrounding him uh, to speak of the destruction that happened to the whole world. And then back in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, it says, They formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few... That is, eight persons were brought safely through water. So God used water in his forming of the earth, and he used that same water to destroy it. So Peter's setting up here. There's the destruction of the world always accompanies uh, the scoffers and mockers. Verse 7, it says, But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So going back two verses, first five, verse 5 tells us that God's Word created the world. Verse 6 tells us that it was God's Word, by means of these, that He destroyed the world. And verse 7 tells us that it is God's Word that sustains the current heavens and earth. And it's for a very specific purpose. So why is everything being sustained right now? Is it because of what the scoffers are saying, that he's just slow and he's um, nowhere to be found? Or is it, as verse 7 is saying, that it's being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly? That is why it's being kept now. God's word created it, destroyed it, sustains it now, and will judge it again. Verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So this is our second use of the phrase beloved. Again, keep in mind his audience. He's writing to those he loves that God has placed his love upon that he calls beloved. So notice the beloved don't overlook, while the rest of mankind, the scoffers, do overlook. The Bible says that uh, in verse 5, the scoffers deliberately overlook this one fact. But Peter tells us, don't overlook this one fact. But then he says, the day, uh, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. This is 
simply a consistent message throughout Scripture. Psalm 90, verse 5, it says, For a thousand years are in your sight are but yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. And what it's getting at is time is of no consequence to God. I mean, a few seconds could pass or a billion years can pass, and it's just the same to him. You and I have so much time on earth, and maybe this year has gone very slow to you or incredibly fast, but you and I notice the passing of time, and it affects us. But with God, it just it does not affect him. One day is as a thousand years, and it doesn't matter how many thousands or millions or billions of people gripe about his slowness or about his not coming. Um, a thousand years is like one day. And of course, uh, there are some that take this to be a literal equation that a thousand years is exactly one day. And I just don't think that's the point it's getting at. Uh, that's not the point that Peter's bringing across here to create a mathematical equation to start computing things. He's simply restating what the Old Testament states is that time is of no essence to God. It doesn't affect him. There's no timer that's counting down that makes him feel pressure. Everything operates on his timetable. So now, uh, verse 9, Peter continues, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's not slow to fulfill his promise. In English, when we want to emphasize something, we underline it, we highlight it, we bold it, we italicize it, we change the font size and all of those things. But in Greek, when, something, uh, when someone wants to emphasize something, they change the word order. And in the Greek, the words not slow is brought all the way up to the front of the sentence. So Peter literally starts with sentence with not slow, the Lord. And so he's emphasizing the fact that God is not slow. And he's saying that God exists continually in a state of not slowness. He is never at any point lagging behind. He's always on time, and his plans come to pass exactly when they want him to, when he wants them to. Acts 17.31 says that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all those by raising him from the dead. God has fixed a day. It's there. And it is coming. Because it seems slow to us doesn't mean that it's not coming. Um, so God has fixed a day. And then in the book of Hebrews, and I think this is a message we all need to hear and listen to, it says it's appointed for man to die once. It's appointed. And um, just a little insight you didn't get to make that appointment. God makes that appointment, that he appoints the day of our death. And so all of our, um, I mean, all of our uh, attempts to extend our life beyond that appointment are futile. We don't know what that appointment is. And God commands us to live uh, righteously and uh, to not be foolish. It doesn't change the fact. God has appointed a day. For us to die he has fixed a day for judgment and it's not it's not changing what the scoffers don't realize that as time passes it's not they become more hard-hearted continually uh mocking more and more but they don't realize that they're one closer the one day closer to that day coming to pass that will come so the lord is not slow to fulfill his promise of coming back 
of judging the world, as some count slowness. But again, I'll, I'll harp on it the whole time that we're on this chapter, but is patient toward who? Towards those who he is addressing. He is patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Um, there's a few things I want to I point out here. In our ESV, it uses the word wish. It's, it's technically a correct translation, probably not the best one, because you and I confuse wishing with like blowing out candles on a birthday cake or wishing upon a star or something like that. And it's like, oh, I wish this would happen. That's not exactly uh, what it's trying to convey um, that God is doing there. He's not just sitting back, crossing his fingers, saying, man, I hope this works out. He, uh, it, the word simply means a will or desire. God does not desire uh, that any should perish. Um, in certain contexts, this verse is sometimes quoted by those who teach against the doctrine of election or predestination. And they will say that God is not willing that any should perish. And we would say yes and amen. We agree 100%. Except that nowhere in the context of Second Peter does God have in mind all mankind or every single person. Uh, imagine it being read that way. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any single person in the world should perish, but that every single person should reach repentance. And if this is the case, that Peter intends every single person here, then we're left with the question of, why are some people, that, why are some people created that never even hear the gospel? They have no chance of hearing him. If God wanted them doesn't want them to perish, and he does want them to reach repentance, then why did he create them to live and die out in some remote place where no outsider's voice will ever reach them with the gospel? Another question would be, does God simply leave people to their own wills to find him? He's not willing that any should perish, but for whatever reason, he simply provides them an opportunity and leaves it up to them to decide their own fate. That is not what Peter's getting at. That is not a biblical teaching that's not what we teach at this church and also we'd have to suddenly and unexpectedly redefine what Peter means by you patient towards you and it would no longer mean the beloved the believers but it would suddenly mean all people everywhere we have to be consistent in how we read this so for those that read that God is not willing that any person anywhere at any time should perish, but that any person and every person should come to repentance. Is it an impossible reading? No, I don't think it's an impossible reading, but I believe it's more likely that we are to read it like so, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards those he has placed his love on, not willing that any of them should perish, but that all of them should reach repentance. So God is patient towards us. He displays his patience towards you and I all the way to where we repent of our sins and we believe the gospel. It says that all should reach repentance. The word reach there is interesting. It's actually used to describe a, a district or a region or a place, like a specific uh, country or piece of land, if you will. And this is used in a lot of contrast. For example, a country contrasted with a city, dry land contrasted with the sea. And what Peter is getting at here is repentance is such a great place to reach, such a great place to go, rather than 
hiding rather than um, covering it up. You see, in repentance, there is change and healing and restoration and new life. And in hiding, there is isolation and decay and eventual death. And I did save this part for the last on, on this verse. Um, my opinion is not worth much, and I'm no Bible translator, I'm no Bible scholar. But in my opinion, the ESV doesn't do a great job of translating this verse here. And the reason I say it is because nowhere in the original Greek here is the subjunctive used, which usually gets, finds its way into our English as like should or may or might. And uh, should often gets misunderstood. <laughs> should often gets misunderstood in English when coming from the Greek, uh, and it's, it's more technical than I want to get into today, but actually the CSB, Christian Standard Bible, which is the other Bible we sometimes use here, actually does a much better job, uh, and I'll read it to you. It says, the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So it's just very clear there that God is patient towards his beloved towards the believers, not wanting any of them, the subject hasn't changed, to perish, but all of them to come to repentance. Verse 10 says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Uh, In other words, when no one expects it, when no one expects it. If you expect a thief to come, you prepare, and you'll be there. You'll turn on your cameras, you'll lock your door, you'll turn on uh, your alarms and all of that. But when you're going about things um, and you have no idea when that thief is coming, that's the point. It's, it's unexpected. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar. It literally means a loud noise, but uh, it means the noise... Uh, like an arrow that's shot right past your head, just whizzes by. And so it's just going to happen that quick with no, um, no time to alter your plans. Um, I mean, just imagine now, just sit here for a moment and imagine what if, what if you knew with a thousand percent certainty that Jesus is coming back at 2 p.m. today? Uh, and let me back for a second. I heard... Um, that Jesus actually is coming back at 2 p.m. I mean, we have like 24 time zones, so it's going to be 2 p.m. somewhere. So come on, come on. So anyways, um, imagine if Jesus is coming back at 2 p.m. What would you do? Just imagine for a second. What would you do? Would you just lock yourself in a closet and pray the whole time? Would you spend time with family? What would you do? But the truth is we don't know that. The Bible says, Jesus told us, you know the times and the seasons. We don't know the day or the hour. And every fool who tries to predict it, I'm sorry, that's just the word they get. That's, <laughs> you can still go on the internet and find that Jesus is coming back in 1988, and that's obviously coming past in every other prediction. And there will be someone in the future that says Jesus is coming back at this day, and they'll lay out this complex system. It always happens. They'll get some kind of following, and that day comes and goes because no one knows the day or the hour, not even them. But imagine... You, you don't know because you don't. And then imagine just hearing outside of this building a roar that lasts a few seconds and then it's gone and that's it and we're all done. That's what it's talking about. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, like that, and you'll just have no time to alter your plans or to say, 
oh, I hear that. That's the sound of Jesus. Now I'll change everything I'm doing and believe. It happens so fast that it's like that moment in time. If you have not trusted Christ by that time, it is too late. And that time has passed. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Um, I don't really want to get into whether this is literal or metaphorical. And to tell you the truth, the commentators are, are not super helpful here. And in my opinion, it's because they have no idea either. So I think we should just leave that up to mystery. Uh, but in context, we can say that God's enemies, sin and evil and everything bad, will experience a time of terror like never before. So think about this. The whole earth, the sun, our solar system, all of the planets and all of the, the solar systems and their planets, all the galaxies, our entire universe, gone. All the places we live, all the schools, all the parks, all the places we work, all the computers, all the phones, all the game systems, all the cars, all the TV, all your money, every family heirloom you have, everything, just gone. 1 Timothy 6-7 says, We brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of it. This might be a good time to reflect on what you really treasure in your heart. If that moment were to happen right now, is there something your heart is hanging on to saying, I would really miss this? It says, And the, work, uh, the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. In other words, we're going to see everything for what it really is. Verse 11 since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So Peter starts out, since all these things are going to be dissolved, it's a contrast with the mockers that are saying, it's been so long, he's, that's not going to happen. Peter says, oh, it's happening. And since that's going to happen, here's what you need to do about it. What sort of people you ought to be. So he's drawing a contrast here between the followers of Jesus how they should act, and the scoffers, how they act. So the scoffers mock, and we praise. So they could say in days like this, why, why do you keep meeting with other believers? It's been 2,000 years since Jesus uh, came and lived, and uh, why do you keep doing this? You know, we've discovered so much about um, science and geology and all this stuff and we just say well God's word is true and we'll be praising him and they'll mock you for that they'll mock um, they mock Jesus for it they mocked his early followers that will continue today that will continue in the next generation until the day we die but we we don't mock we praise and it says they scorn and we pray Jesus says pray for those who persecute you and spitefully use you so we continue to pray. It doesn't matter whether people think it doesn't have any effect. Um, it doesn't matter whether um, uh, really what, people, what anyone else thinks of it. We continue to pray. And they continue sinning. They, they do what they want because this is the, the only life they think they have, so they want to get all the pleasure out of it. They can. So they continue sinning, but you and I confess and repent of sin. They ignore God's warnings, and we heed them and flee from the wrath that is to come, to use the words of John the Baptist. So the scriptures are crystal clear that there is judgment coming. People might think they have all the time in the world or days and years and lifetimes left. They might, you know, imagine we're going to become some interstellar society and 
hundreds or thousands of years, it really doesn't matter. We know God's judgment is coming, and we want to be prepared for it. Verse 12 says, Waiting and hastening for the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So notice here is another contrast. We are waiting and hastening, which just means eagerly awaiting the day of God, while the rest are either indifferent or running away from it. So we're waiting for it because for the beloved, for us, it's not going to be a day of destruction and wrath. It will be the day that we get to meet Jesus, the one who has saved us from God's wrath. And hastening, hastening the coming of the day of God. We cannot make it come sooner, but we can pray with Uh, We can pray with the Apostle John at the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 20, where he says, Amen, come Lord Jesus. And so if you cannot pray that wholeheartedly at this moment, that might be a sign that in your heart right now, there's something you need to check and reflect on. What day are you really looking forward to? Is it retirement? Is it an empty nest? Is it the day you have kids or the day you get married? or the day you get to leave the house, or the day you get to graduate, the day you don't have any school anymore, or or whatever it is, this or that, is the day you're really looking for, January 1st, 2021. What day are we looking for? Um, It says, because of which uh, the heavens will be burned. It says, because of the coming day of God, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So everything is going away. This is the real end of the world in verse 12 right here. This is the real end of the world. When the Bible speaks of the end of the world, nowhere in its context does it mention that this is brought about by a pandemic or the changing of a political administration or any social movement. In other words, this is not going to be done by human effort or by anything outside of God's own hand. God himself brought the universe into creation, and he himself will bring its end about. And this is why we learned as kids that he has the whole world in his hands. When it's time, God himself will bring things to an end. Not a moment sooner, not a moment later. And I say that really to hopefully, I hope I can jolt some of you, uh, just kind of jolt some of the fear out of you. Things are out of our control. It's not out of God's control. He's got his hands fully on the steering wheel, as he always has. But according to his promise, verse 13, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. According to his promise. Peter includes himself here where he says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens, new earth. Peter's waiting for it too at this point. And that was a long, long time ago. And we wait for it too. Uh, new heavens and new earth. All the way back in the book of Isaiah, chapter 65, verse 17, and by the way, this is written around 900 years um, uh, before Jesus. I may have written that down wrong. Anyways, it's hundreds of hundreds of years before uh, Jesus was born. This is a prophecy. It says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. I just want to read that again. So this is God speaking. He says, I create new heavens and a new earth. This is obviously speaking to the future. 
And listen to this next part. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. I was actually thinking on this on the way here. Um, I think about these things. When we go into eternity, will we have a memory or will it be completely wiped? And when we're just starting anew, and I consider both. Well, let's consider that we do have a memory. I can remember some pretty bad things. I can remember my own sin, other people's sin. I can remember some of the evil in the world. Will I carry that with me into eternity? Or if I have my memory wiped, or we just start from scratch, am I even me anymore? I mean, what am I at that point? I just a clean slate? Um, so I thought about this. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. What if, what if it's like this? What if we remember things? What if we remember sin and evil and all of that and all of the hurt that it brought to us? And what if every time we remember that hurt and the tears start coming to our eyes, God wipes away every tear? I like that. I can do that. What if God wipes away all of the hurt every time it comes back? Um, that might go against some of the things we think about when we think about heaven, just this place of eternal bliss and paradise where there's no, no hurt. And again, I'm, I'm no expert on that, but um, something, to, something to consider. There will be, uh, I know the book of Revelation says there will be no more crying. And so um, this is where I really feel like authors like C.S. Lewis just really, really get things. When I, when I read his books and things like that, um, heaven is a place that we can look forward to and desire. I used to think it was a really, really long church service, and I'm a guy who liked church, but I'm not interested in that. I'm sorry. Um, I'm like you. I don't want to... You get what I'm saying, okay? Um, so what if the things will not be remembered or come to mind not because God changes the subject or because he wipes our memory like we're some computer, but what if he's right there comforting us the whole time for all eternity? Is that a plausible explanation? I don't know. I just, I think I like that one. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, so this is the third time he uses this, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Since you are waiting for these things. So the scoffers are mocking and laughing, making fun of you, and we are waiting. We're waiting for these things. So while we're waiting, we're not supposed to be idle. We have something to do. And he says, be diligent. Be diligent. And it means to exert yourself to make an effort. To what? To try to be better? No. Be diligent to be found by him. Peter's encouragement is to be found by God but in a very specific state, be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Without spot or blemish, be found by God perfect. No sin, no guilt, nothing ugly, nothing wrong or out of place. Nothing you should be ashamed of. So be found without spot or blemish and at peace. Peace comes from having your spots and blemishes wiped away. This peace is given to us through having our sins blotted out and covered by the blood of Jesus. Elsewhere, this is called the peace of God, Philippians 4.7. And it's a common opening phrase in the apostles' letters to the church. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
Second Peter chapter 1, verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And just one other example, Colossians chapter 1, verse 2, this is the Apostle Paul. He says, grace to you and peace. Grace and peace. And this was because that they had the peace that was given to them by Jesus. And every follower of Jesus to this day has that same peace given to them by Jesus. John, 14, chapter, uh, John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And in John chapter 20, Jesus says, Again, peace be with you. Jesus gives us peace. And it says, be diligent to be found by him. So imagine back all the way to the Garden of Eden. Uh, Adam and Eve sinned, and they go and hide. And God comes and walks in the garden, and he says, Adam, where are you? And so was God asking because he didn't know where Adam was? And he's like, I need your help, Adam. Let's play hide-and-seek here. Where are you at? Or was he asking to help Adam stop and reflect? Didn't I just run away from the God who loves me? Be diligent to be found by him. God knows where we are, and God will find us. Remember verse 10. It says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. In other words, when no one expects him, and the earth and all the works that are done in it will be exposed. Um. I wrote a little parable here. This is obviously my little story. Please don't take it as scripture. It's, I just wrote a story to try to help maybe get your mind uh, around this for a second. Imagine an open invitation is sent out for all people to gather at the king's house. All sorts of people arrive from wealthy to famous to poor and unrecognizable. They're all given a message. The king has gone on a long journey, but he will return. While the king is gone, his son is here, and he is the heir. He will be your host. He has a list of specific names. If your name is called, a place has been made for you to be here with the king forever. Then they begin calling out the names. Those whose names were called are truly grateful for the son's presence among them. They honor and respect him. And they respect the king's palace, knowing that they've been given what they do not deserve. But the ones whose names were not called could care less who was around them. They're there just for the free stuff and for the party, so they begin to disrespect the king's house. The son notices their actions and calls them out. In their anger, they kill the son and ransack the palace and begin to mistreat those whose names were called. This seems to go on and on. And some begin to mock the king's servants about his message, saying, Where's your king now? I thought he was coming back. Then, as they were speaking, the doors burst open, and the king returned with his army. Chaos ensued as some began to try and run and hide. But the king's army gets them all. And as the king walks through his palace, he finds some beating their fellow man. And others are stealing from his palace and then he sees that his son has been killed. Laying next to his son is a note in his own handwriting. It's a list of names. Those whose names were not in the list were thrown out forever and burned. And those whose names were on the list were welcomed at the king's house where they lived forever. And I wrote that just to, to give us a story. What if, 
what if we were in that setting to where there's some that just mock um, the message of God, that he's not coming back, they mistreat us, they marginalize us, they kill some of us, they, they mock us for being here this morning, and we know he's coming back. And it saddens us because we know what state they will end up in. And Peter, uh, Peter lays that out. Just a few verses left. Um, verse 15, he's addressing the believers again here. It says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. Count God's patience as salvation. God's patience in this context is towards his elect, towards his chosen, the beloved. And it lasts all the way until they reach repentance. Thank God. Because if God's patience was like my patience, it could flip in an instant. <laughs> I can be super patient, and then in about three seconds, uh, no, not super patient. Now, real quickly, God's, God is patient in general, and the Bible speaks that God's of, of God's general patience. Um, but for the unbeliever, God is continually in a state of anger. Uh, Psalm 7, verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. But for the believer, Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. Do you ever why God gives you so many chances in life? He's patient towards you to reach repentance, to come to him confessing your sins and believing in his son. And it's, Peter tells us to count the patience of our Lord as salvation. So what does that mean? It's almost to me as if Peter is saying God never wastes or tosses out patience arbitrarily or because he has nothing better to do. His patience is very specific. It's towards you, that's verse 9, and it has a very specific purpose, that all should reach repentance. You ever wonder about the assurance of your salvation? Uh, if you're not, I'll answer for you. Yes, you do, because I do too. We all do. We all ask that question from time to time, and in fact, the Bible tells you to examine yourself, not every single second, but uh, at times, to see whether you are in the faith. You ever ask the question, am I really saved? Think about this. What if the patience of God towards you is a sign of your salvation? What if God's patience towards you is a sign of your salvation? Not the only sign, maybe not even the primary sign of your salvation, but what if it's a sign towards you? Think about that. So he also mentions uh, in verse 15, he says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our brother Paul, our beloved brother Paul. This is our fourth use of the word beloved. It's a common phrase in this uh, chapter, as I'm trying to lay out here. Uh, just as our brother Paul also wrote to you, the wisdom given to him. Now notice Peter here calls Paul brother. This is the same Paul that confronted Peter publicly in his face about his own sin. And yet Peter calls him beloved brother. Proverbs 27, verse 6, it says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Psalm 141, 5, it says, Let a righteous man strike me. 
it is kindness. Let a righteous man rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. This is one thing I think that so many of us are either completely unfamiliar with or just really uncomfortable with. We need to really re-familiarize ourselves with the giving and receiving of godly rebuke. And then think, I think it's one of the marks of my generation, the people who are around my age, that just cannot receive a rebuke. Um, it's like you immediately get defensive. You immediately view the person as hating you or being mean. And it's just not the case. Of course, you shouldn't accept um, ungodly uh, things said to you. That's not what this is talking about. But we can see so many examples in the Bible of hard things being said, but the, the person receives them because they know they're the truth and they know, they know when to turn from sin is the real issue. And so consider for yourself, maybe are, are there some things that you've gotten a little too defensive about? And then the question is, what are you trying to guard? Sometimes we try to guard our, our image. Sometimes when someone says something that maybe we need to change, we start getting a little defensive because that means, well, if I admit defeat here, it means I might look bad or I might look weak, this or that. Sometimes we just need to accept that and say, yeah, you're right. I've got something to change here. Would you forgive me for that? So Peter speaks of Paul uh, writing about the wisdom giving to him. Verse 16 continues, as he does in his letters when he speaks of them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Paul writes in several places. I'll just mention one. In Romans 2.4, it talks about um, the riches and kindness and God's patience, knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So, And notice it mentions all his letters, all of Paul's letters. So evidently, by the time Peter's writing this, Paul's letters are circulating throughout the church. This is just one of the, what we call internal evidences of the scriptures, uh, that they are, they are true to what they say. They are written extremely early, and they were widely known and being distributed to the church at this time. Now, the end of verse 16 uh, we need to go into as well. It says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Do you ever read the Bible and just come say, hey, this is kind of hard to understand? Yeah, I do. I mean, <laughs> I'm kind of glad Rick did the whole series on Revelation because that's a hard to understand for me. I like the way he did it. But there are things in there that are hard to understand. The point Peter is making here is not that the Bible shouldn't be hard to understand, it's what do you do with those things? I can tell you this. So, for example, from translating Greek, most Greek students start with 1 John because it's relatively easy compared to the rest of the Bible. When I went into Philippians, it was very hard. Uh, Paul's writing is very different from John's. In English, we can't pick these things up sometimes. Sometimes it seems like it all bleeds together uh, or runs together. But in translating the original English, you can really see the, the writer's uh, personality, their tendencies, their styles. It's actually really fascinating. But sometimes Paul would use a whole slew of words that is like, this is the first time I've ever seen this. I'm having to go look them up all the time. And it makes translating very slow, and it's hard. 
Um, and of course, sometimes he uses words that barely have any usage anywhere, so you have to rely on the definitions given to you, and sometimes it makes those things hard to understand. And of course, this is me, very, very, I'm, I'm no scholar, not even close to it. Um, and, it, and sometimes that makes it hard. But again, this is not Peter knocking people for things in the Bible being hard to understand. So it's possible Peter here is saying that Paul's level of writing and theological expertise can make things hard to understand. Keep in mind, everyone in his day was not literate, especially not like Paul. Paul was trained for years uh, um, as a scribe and Pharisee. So he... Uh, his theological expertise was just head and shoulders above everyone else. Um, the point here is what Peter is saying, what are you doing with those things that are hard to understand? Notice Peter describes these people in two ways. He says that they are ignorant and unstable. Um, basically, their sin comes out when the scriptures get tough. They basically cannot interpret the scriptures with the scriptures and know that God's words are true. They're ignorant. It comes from a, uh, a word that doesn't just mean dumb. It doesn't just mean not intelligent. It means that they've been taught and they refuse to learn through instruction. In other words, they've been taught, but they're rebellious and they refuse to believe. They're unstable, and it means they aren't strong and established. So imagine a, a, ten feet, a 10 foot tall fence that's buried two inches in the ground. It's just not gonna work. The first decent wind that's gonna come over, it blows right over. And uh, actually Paul himself writes about this in Ephesians 4, verse 14. He writes, he talks about the whole building up of the church, the establishment of teachers in the church, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by, by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine. So a mark of spiritual immaturity is being unstable. Every time something new pops up, it reveals how unstable you are. And I, and I might even need to rephrase this. It's not just talking here. Peter's not talking towards immature Christians that need to grow and learn. He's talking about people that misuse the scriptures. And it's because they've, um, they've planted on a a wrong foundation. They do not have deep roots in the truth. So when error comes along, it just sweeps them away. You and I need deep roots and deep roots in a solid foundation so that we can spot the errors around us and they are plenty. And so we can stay grounded in the faith. Um, if you get into almost any church doctrine, there's a, there's a heresy with it or multiple heresies with it. And so we have to know the truth and we have to be rooted in the truth. So the ignorant and unstable, what do they do with the scriptures? It's not that they ignore them. They twist them to their own destruction. This means that they torture the language of the scriptures. They quote scriptures out of context and make them say things that they don't. They give words alternate meanings, which is like a staple of our <laughs> generation today. What good is twisting the scriptures? What good is trying to get away from what they clearly say about anything and everything? Who are we saving at that point from getting away from the plain teaching of scriptures? Shouldn't we say what the Bible says about lust, about adultery, about thieving and murder? What about the murdering of children and abortion? What about what the Bible teaches about marriage? What about what the Bible teaches about sexuality? What about what the Bible teaches about peace 
Or what about what the Bible teaches about loving your neighbor? What does the Bible define as loving your neighbor? Not how we want to define it today. What does the Bible teach is really loving God and obeying God and obeying what he says? So here Peter says that the ignorant and unstable twist the scriptures. They twist all these things. They take the true teachings of God and they say, well, that really means this or I'm going to apply it this way. And it's never how it was meant to be. And it says, Peter says that they do this as they do the other scriptures. This is one of the places that we point to that the early church saw and recognized when God was speaking to them. Peter recognizes Paul's writings as scripture. Verse 17, you, therefore, beloved, this is the last time in this chapter that he uses that word, you, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So what are we supposed to know beforehand? We're supposed to know that judgment is coming and the destruction of the wicked, of the world. We are supposed to know that Jesus is coming again. And we are supposed to take care which means to be on guard, that we're not carried away by the error of lawless people and lose our own stability. So we are, we are to be careful and guard against people who would bring us away from the warnings found in Scripture. The warnings are there for a reason. And um, Peter's encouragement, his exhorting here to the beloved is to listen to those, to not overlook those, to to pay attention. And this whole point is, if you do that, you'll lose your own stability. Peter's saying, I don't want you to lose your stability. Stability makes us useful to those around us, and it gives us peace of mind. I mean, imagine for a second, if you, if you work or if you're at home, whatever it is, imagine if you were just incredibly unstable. Um, imagine if you're at home and your family just has no idea where their next meal is coming from. Or, or if you're going to wash their clothes, or if you're going to take care of yourself, or just be absent. You're just very unstable and unpredictable. You're not very useful at home then at that point. And of course, if you're at work, I mean, if you rarely show up, if you do a bad job, um, if you uh, steal things and then um, say all kinds of things, just act like a bad employee, you're not a very stable person. You're not very useful at work. So Peter is saying here, that the ignorant and unstable twist the scriptures and then they're carried away by lawless people and then they lose any kind of stability that they have. And he warns us not to be like that. Instead of being unstable, here's the last contrast he gives, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in, grow in grace and knowledge. So instead of being unstable, we need to be useful. We need to grow. The only way a plant can grow is if it has solid roots. If a plant uh, has shallow roots or is barely covered with some dust uh, instead of planted, once the slightest disturbance comes along, it can't grow. It's not rooted. It's uprooted. Growing is not passively done to us. We don't grow um, with no effort being exerted on our own. It's an active thing. It's done with our effort involved. Uh, and of course it's done uh, through 
the power of the Holy Spirit, but it is not done uh, with, as if we're some robot or unconscious um, being in that. We are actively involved in that. What are some of the things we do to grow? Well, we pray. We read the scriptures. We gather together with other believers. We encourage one another. Uh, and Peter tells us to grow in grace. What is grace? It is unearned favor. So we are supposed to grow knowing that unearned favor has been given to us and we can give unearned favor to other people. We can grow in knowledge that we should be filling our heads more and more with the knowledge of God and what he has done for us. For some of you, you might have grown a lot this year. Maybe you have used your time wisely. All the lockdown, isolations, not being able to go places and do things, maybe you have used that well. And then maybe you have not. Maybe you have, have been someone that has not grown this year. And instead of blaming all the circumstances around us, maybe you can say, I haven't driven my roots deep. I've just let them sit where they are, and this wave of instability that has passed has caused me to become unstable. So just examine that right now. Which have you done? And then notice here, Peter, the second time in this chapter, uses these uh, descriptors of Jesus. He says, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord and Savior. And it says, to him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. So, I think we should let Second Peter and 2020 be a lesson to us that teaches us these things. Number one, that we should remind ourselves of the coming judgment of the world. Number two, that God will be patient towards his beloved all of their days as they continue to repent and believe in him and his coming again. And number three is that we need to be stable so we can grow. We need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So again, I, I was excited when I got this slot for preaching. Um, God saw this coming <laughs> from eternity past, uh, but you and I are just kind of living it out now. So what has this year been to you? Has it been hard? Has it been dark and difficult? All of the above? Um, this is a time that we can examine ourselves, see how we've used our time, see how we need to change for the days going forward. And I hope you can see now, I hope I've painted the picture crystal clear. This is not the end of the world, not even close. The pandemic doesn't have that kind of power to end the world. The world is in God's hand, and when it's his time, he will bring things to an end. What are you trusting in today? I hope that uh, God has used these things maybe to open your eyes a little bit so you can turn and trust him either again or for the first time. Let's go ahead and pray.